Hey everybody, welcome to episode 180 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas, and I'm excited to share the conversation I am sharing with you today. It was a conversation that wasn't intended originally for a public audience, but as I reflected on it after the fact, I think it has a lot of takeaways for everyone, and it also tells you a little bit more for those interested about our base training program. But Jason Brooks and I had a conversation last week that really sought to summarize some of the key takeaways from our base training program. And some of those takeaways came to us as athletes. Some of them came as coaches. Some of them were things that we just wanted athletes in that program to reflect on as they walked away from it. Either way, there's a lot of good information in here, I think, for all of you. And... That's why I wanted to share it with you today. Incidentally, this also tees up our base training program that will come, that will restart on May 11th with our other podcast-based training programs that are starting on May 11th. We talked in last week's episode, episode 179, about our program focused on women training for a half marathon in the fall. We'll also have another base program starting that is a group that I coach with, Jason, And this is reflective of many of those conversations that we've been having with that group throughout the season. We had a 16-week program with them, and each week we come to them with new details in podcast format that will help supplement the programming that they're getting, the workouts that they're doing along the way. And so this gives you a little taste of that. If you'd like to learn more about our training programs coming up, I'll also put a link to our email interest list in the show notes. So go check that out. Now, as we turn to our conversation with Jason, we're going to break this down into different components. We're going to be talking about the strength component and our takeaways from that as a part of the base training. Then we'll talk about the running component and our takeaways there. And then we had a whole series of topics on lifestyle elements from stress to sleep to a few other elements. We'll be talking about our takeaways from that part of the program as the final chapter of this discussion. So with that as our intro, we'll jump in here with Jason and we'll start on the strength topic. Here we go. As we try to recap or summarize our takeaways on the strength side, what would be the key things that either you've learned or that you'd want people to make sure they have in their head as they go forward? I hope that – so the primacy of movement I think would be my key takeaway from this element of the program and from strength training in general that if we are moving well, then we our body has a higher capacity for its stress load. Um, and, and so we maximize our potential as athletes by focusing on making sure that we have good movement patterns and then we build strength through those movement patterns. And if I'm right, then you probably feel strong and healthy in your running right now and you see the benefit or can perceive the benefit already of strength training being a routine part of your program. Uh, If you don't feel that way, make sure that you've given it an honest effort incorporating strength training into your program. You know, try to hit that ideal of three days a week or 
or somewhere in between, like maybe two and a half days on average and try it a little bit longer because I think that you'll, you'll find that your running is much better and you feel better, you recover better when you have good movement patterns and you have good strength through those movement patterns. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. And I think the related point for me that sort of hit me in the face this season with, especially with Travis's guidance, is just this idea that the best athletes, the best movers on the planet, Olympic level athletes, are going back to the basics with fundamental movement at the beginning of their training cycles to reset their foundation every single year or every single season. And if the best athletes in the world, the best movers need to do that, then how much more do those of us who, you know, are struggling a little bit more to move need that? And I know for myself who struggles consistently with ankle mobility and certainly that hip hinge, it's, it's a reminder of just the fact that I need to consistently work those things and consistently go back to checking those movement patterns. And so one thing I would encourage people to do is especially related to those mobility tests that we did at the beginning of the season is to go back at the end of week 16 and go and do those mobility tests. So see where you are after 16 weeks of work so you can see your progress. And I think that's something that will be powerful to latch onto. And then, you know, if you have a journal or running log or whatever it may be, and then keep those stats and consistently go back to those mobility tests after training cycles at the beginning of training cycles so that you can see where you are and kind of keep track of that over time. And hopefully there's a natural upper trajectory, but what you're going to find is that when you get back into run specific training and get into race specific work, you're going to really focus on that part of your athleticism and some of those mobility elements will tighten up again or become a challenge again. And so when you have to reset, you might see that progress isn't linear and that you've backslidden a little bit and that's okay. That's a part of the process as Travis talked about with even his you know, highest level of athletes. So, you know, so use to me, use, you can use those mobility tests as your guide of progress and consistently go back to testing them to see where you are as well as consistently go back to working mobility to make sure that when you do start from scratch and rebuild a foundation every season, that that's where you start with just fundamental clean movement. And if you can do that, you're going to be healthier, more injury free as you progress through any type of training. And, you know, that's something for me, I always maybe knew that movement patterns were important and fundamental but maybe not how much you have to kind of consistently go back and revisit those things, consistently go back to the basics on fundamental movement and that that's normal and not just something that me as, you know, as an athlete who doesn't have perfect movement patterns has to do. You nailed it, Chris. Your, <laughs> your advocacy for movement, it just warms me. It's great. <laughs> and, and, you know, without that fundamental movement, the strength stuff doesn't really matter. And I, and I, and I've come to believe that for a lot of runners, you know, especially those that are 
prioritizing time or that have to prioritize time. Obviously, the strength is important, but I think clean movement is probably even more important. And so if you have to pick a thing to work on or there's a period of time where maybe you can't do strength for whatever reason, never let the fundamental movement stuff go because that's brass tacks. Absolutely. So when I, when I have a, if I have a big goal, I'm after like say the wonderland trail, I may go after again this summer. Eventually my, the time I invest in the volume of running that I need to do will grow so much that I won't be able to hold on to all the strength training that I'm doing. And, and for me at all, one, because of a stress constraint and two, because of a time constraint, I come down to just mobility and I focus on just working through good movement patterns, keeping my body functioning well. And, uh, and like the, the strength and the sports specific elements of strength training all go away from me, but I try to hold on to that just basic element of good movement. Yeah. Always. So that is a good fundamental takeaway. Hopefully everybody can latch onto it and really keep it forever. Let's talk about running unless you've got anything else on the strength side. No, I think we, I think we ironed that out pretty well. Okay. For this running segment, I wanted to just talk about some lessons, some takeaways from the running side of the equation. And obviously this is my bread and butter and the area where I spend a lot of, most of my day thinking about as a running coach. And so I wanted to emphasize a couple of points. One would just simply be kind of going back to our first podcast episode, introducing this whole program, Jason, which is the the case for base training, which is just a reminder that regardless of where you go from here, that there is always a time and a place periodically throughout your running journey for a base block of training where you can hit pause on race specific goals and really maybe try to focus on and work on some weaknesses that might help you get to that next level. And as an athlete myself, who's been training for 20 years, going into a bit of a base block right now myself, you know, even 20 years of doing this, it's, it's giving, given me, even in this weird sort of pandemic self quarantine time, it's given me a fresh look on my own training that is exciting, is interesting, is fun, and it's also I know will pay off for me in ways that I haven't yet seen, but certainly will see as I continue to progress through it. So that's sort of takeaway one is that regardless of where you end up, and it may not be obviously this year, but or next year even, but somewhere down the road, you're gonna get a you're gonna hit a point in your training again where it would be prudent to take a pause, go back into kind of a similar base training mode like we've been doing this time and just reset for what might be a new goal at the time. So that's one thing to remember. Second thing to remember, which is so fundamental to improvement over the long haul, it's that consistent, easy running is the foundation of almost all running improvement. As you move back into a race-specific block of training, it's easy to, to 
focus on and to look at and kind of think that the most important element is the workouts and the hard work, the faster running. And while yes, that's sexier and it can be fun. And of course it's absolutely a part of getting faster over time. The real bread and butter, the real good stuff, the real glue that keeps this going that develops this aerobic capacity in you that will allow you to use the speed that you find on those workout days is the easy running on your easy days, on your medium long run days, on your recovery days, on those long run days where you're just taking it easy. It's the easy running at conversational pace that isn't sexy, that doesn't necessarily get as many kudos on Strava, but is absolutely fundamental for long-term development and reaching your potential in the sport. And I would just encourage you to never lose sight of that. Even when the sexy workouts jump in and when you're doing a lot of fast stuff and that's trying you and it should. And, and again, that has a place in training as well. But the real meat, the real bread and butter, the real stuff that's going to get you faster over the long term is that consistent, easy running, those runs in between the workouts that if done consistently over a period of weeks, months, years, and decades in my case, that's going to really get you to places that you never thought possible. So those are my two takeaways for the group on running. What do you have, Jason? Yeah, chop wood, carry water, right? That's exactly. where that's where we started with this program. Um, so I pretty much had the exact same takeaways. So that doesn't make this for <laughs> that interesting of a conversation. Uh, but I, you know, in the process of this, I reflected on my experience over the last five years or so where I've struggled with a bit of injury and downtime pretty much every year. And, uh, and so I've often built back from downtime too fast. I get impatient and I lose sight of what it was to be new at running and, and growing through the journey and how much time it took for me to get from running 5k to 100k and that I can't just jump back into this high level of training if I haven't done, if I don't have the foundation in place. And that's often led to recurring injury for me. And it's been a, just a super important part of how I have learned to better manage my training and my health over years as an athlete, even when I have to deal with some downtime. You know, this, this for me, this period that I've been going through this space training as well since October just highlights that the reality of that fundamental <laughs> sort of belief that we have that we're pushing through this program that we build the foundation and that's how you can get to the next level. Uh, and so, you know, I got past level one in any game. And that's what this is. And so, yep. yeah, it was a good Cheers reminder for me. Yeah. Cheers to that. Yeah. Always go back to chop wood, carry water. And 
for for strength it's about the fundamental movement that's that's the wood in the water for running it's about that easy consistent running that's the wood and the water and so hopefully you'll be able to take those things and and not lose sight of them as you move into whatever's next let's talk about the lifestyle elements now jason and we'll we'll kind of go through these in sequence we've talked about a lot throughout this program and i know that various athletes have decided to focus on some of these and maybe not others but let's let's kind of get to the chop wood carry water part of each of these starting with sleep and i'll let you start you know what are your fundamental takeaways on the sleep category yeah excuse me there's there's no replacement for sleep i think is the top line on that or the bottom line, if you will. Um, sleep is not expendable time. I, I find that I am always fighting this struggle of, you know, if I really think I need nine hours of sleep for where I am in life at any given period, but I am starting to feel a little overwhelmed and I start to think about what activities in my life are going on the chopping block. I'm always trying to safeguard sleep, but it's a struggle and, and I often sacrifice it. And so I, I do as much as I can. <clears throat> and this uh, last couple of months has really helped me clarify the fact that sleep is not expendable time. I can't think about it that way. Um, and then I guess the, the, the last impression that I would like to press, which is even uh, more important right now in our given situation, sort of living in pandemic um, quarantined circumstances, is developing and nurturing a circadian rhythm that's appropriate for you. And we shared some resources on circadian rhythm um, and chronotypes when we were talking about sleep resources and figuring out like how, how you kind of structure your day and your routine around your unique physiology is really important for um, managing stress as best you can. So sleep. Uh, and then I guess the, the final point I'd say is that um, it's the best recovery modality you could possibly engage in that one's guaranteed if you sleep you will feel better and it's not even really close right i mean it's not even close sleep being the best modality and and there's more to it than just running recovery there's there's health and physical elements to that as well and i think kind of mirroring your first point for me you know i used to think of needing sleep or wanting sleep as a sign of laziness. And I think part of that's my growing up in a corporate culture or at least my early career years were spent in a corporate culture where we worked heavy hours. We were burning the candle at both ends, so to speak. And I remember one of my, my first job after graduate school working in management consulting and probably, you know, working anywhere from 60 to 80 hours a week, depending on the project and the week and the timing, just way too much work. But we had a, a nap room 
in our office that was kind of a joke because, and this was, you know, back in 2006, seven, eight. So 15 years ago, I think, and I think the world might be more open to nap rooms now, but at the time it was a relatively novel concept that also was a little bit of a joke because no one ever used it for napping in a sense that, you know, if it was the middle of the day on a Thursday, there, there's no way in hell you would find somebody sneaking in there at two o'clock to go take a nap. But you would find or hear about people who slept at the office overnight because they were busy burning. You know, the, the candle didn't want to go home, so they would maybe go sleep in the nap room from 11 to 7 a.m. and get up and kind of keep cranking. And so, so it became this really kind of sick joke where, you know, you didn't use the nap room to nap, you use the nap room to actually sleep at the office, which is a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. Obviously the nap room was not being used for its fundamental purpose, but be part of that, but as a part of that culture, it kind of became for me in my head, Oh, like napping is a sign of weakness or napping is a sign of, of laziness of somehow of somehow. But especially over the last couple of years and and as I've learned more through this base training cycle myself, I've definitely come to embrace the nap as well as my own cues of fatigue that might indicate I need sleep. And I mean, today is a perfect example. I was, you know, here this morning, home, homeschooling the kids and you know, we had just had our lunch and they were starting some of their afternoon assignments and I found myself just really tired. I had, I read, did a workout this morning and I had a bad night of sleep actually on Sunday night for whatever reason, just couldn't sleep. And Amy and I both were kind of restless that night. I think it was a little bit related to just stress and worry of this current situation. And so I think that finally caught up to me after my workout today. And so I was feeling this fatigue and and yet the kids were doing their assignments and I was supposed to be supervising them. And I just, in in a move that I wouldn't have done, you know, three years ago, much less 15 years ago, I just said, all right, kids, you know, do what you want right now. I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and literally from 1.30 to 2.30 today, I just laid down and passed out. And, and, it was, I mean, to me, I claim that as a huge victory because not only did obviously I need it, my body was telling me that I needed it, but also that I've had that mental shift of saying, okay, the priority for me right now, not only as an individual, but also as a father who needs to be present for his kids right now is to be well rested. Yeah. And so I made that decision to maybe sub optimize by some definitions an hour of time for them knowing that it's going to better optimize all of our time as we go forward and put me in a better position to, to be a father for them as well as to be what I need to be personally. And I, I, I'm just telling you two years ago, there's no way I would have made that decision. But you know, what I've learned about sleep has gotten me to that place that it's just so fundamentally important. And and when we can go back to work, there are places now that have nap rooms that are probably not used as much as they need to be used. But I guarantee you, 
if you have one at your place of work and you actually use it when your body gives you those cues, you're going to be a more productive worker as a result, as well as a more recovered athlete. And so that's one thing for me is just, again, that more mental shift of reminding myself that choosing sleep is choosing productivity. It is choosing performance. It's not laziness. It's not a waste of time, as you alluded to. That's point one. Point two for me is quality versus quantity. Obviously, sleep quantity is important. And I've learned that in spades through this pandemic and where I'm getting, you know, at least 40 minutes more on average of sleep per night. And I'm feeling that difference. And all of my metrics through the aura ring that I have are, are showing trending upwards or downwards, as the case may be. Like my resting heart rate's lower than it's been since I've gotten the ring. Uh, the aura ring, my heart rate variability is higher. My respiratory rate is lower, which is a sign of, of recovery. My scores are higher, my sleep scores, my readiness score from the app. So every single metric is better physiologically because of more sleep. So, you know, so that's obvious. But at the same time, you know, sometimes I know there are constraints about, you know, how much time I can get sleeping. And, and the thing I learned, particularly through that survey that we had people complete early on in this cycle is that quantity is important too. And yes, while you want the ultimate combination of both things, sleep quality, as well as sleep quantity, if you can get good quality, even in times when you can't get good sleep quantity, then it can offset a little bit of that lack of quantity. Again, not a perfect solution, not something you want to go to as a long-term answer. And for me, I've learned ultimately I need both. But having good sleep hygiene, having good sleep quality is also something to to work on and and to measure for yourself even when you can't get the hours of sleep that you want. So those are my two things there. Let's talk about stress next stress and we spent a lot of time on this early and and I want to really thank you for my one of my takeaways at least here but I'll get to that one second so one of my takeaways on the stress dimension is that stress isn't necessarily a bad thing you know in training we talk about it It's about the balance of stress and rest and stress is the work that ultimately, if you get the appropriate rest, will make you stronger. And stress is just like pain, just like pain. It's just a, it's a signal, Mm -hmm. signal to you that something's going on. And so it's not necessarily about eliminating, eliminating stress in your life. It's just about listening to it, managing it using it as it should be used as a cue to potentially do something different, make some change, maybe run towards stress. And so it's, it's not a bad thing. And in our culture, I think it's, it's a become a bad word of sorts. Like, Oh, you want to be stress-free and, and that's really not the case. You know, I don't, I don't think you want to be completely stress-free and I don't think what right. pe- people say when they say that, I don't think they're saying 
to eliminate stress. They're just really talking about managing stress better. And so takeaway one is that stress isn't a bad thing and, and stop thinking about it as a bad thing. It's just a cue, just like pain, to inform how you operate. And the second part, you know, which I really credit you for, is this simple tool of a stress inventory. I think that is such a simple yet powerful tool that really, for me, has become a little bit of an embedded, maybe not daily, but almost weekly tool that I'm thinking about. And and obviously, my world is our world is evolving kind of constantly over the last four or five weeks during this pandemic. But it's something that I'm kind of checking in on more frequently than I expected of just, okay, if I'm feeling stressed, if I'm feeling kind of caught up in that energy you feel when you get a little bit anxious and, and you know, and start to kind of worry or whatever it may be, then just going to that simple tool of, okay, objectively identify your sources of stress. What are they? Prioritize them a little bit. What's giving you the most stress? And then just quickly triage each one. You know, what can I do? What can I do to help address that stress area? And then using that as a rapid respond a tool to allow you to rapidly respond to your ever-changing situation has become really effective and powerful for me because it takes the emotion out of it. It it also puts it into a more practical framing so that instead of kind of focusing on how that stress might make me feel, it allows me to focus on what I can do about it and how I can turn it into something that becomes a productive cue. And again, super simple, really easy, doesn't take long once you kind of get used to to doing it, but is really effective at helping you manage stress as it comes at you. And so I have you to thank for that. Awesome. You're welcome. <laughs> That's not an original idea. So uh, we can no, yeah. we can all thank Simon Marshall, uh, the sports psychologist. For, so for what, have you, what do you have on up. the stress dimension? So stress inventory has been a helpful one for me too. And it's, a, it's, it's one where I've kind of like integrated it with my mindfulness practice. So there's a sort of a micro and a macro scale where that can work. But um, thinking about, you know, I often feel, I feel some kind of like physical manifestation of stress, or I have some thought based experience of stress before I really like rec or that's how I typically recognize that I'm stressed out, I should say is through one of these like sensory perceptions. Um, and so working on mindfulness as a practice for me has helped me better tune into those feelings and experiences that I have, like recognizing them and then processing them, uh, which allows me to kind of take that and feed it into a stress inventory or at least have a stress inventory that I can compare with, like compare notes with as I'm going through a sort of thought exercise on why I'm experiencing certain feelings or emotions and I can make relationships, right? Like I'm feeling this way. And, you know, I noted the other day that we're overwhelmed with work uh, and that's probably causing some stress that is 
you know, and then I can start to investigate <clears throat> whatever the situation is by using those tools. So that I think that um, the mindfulness piece of it, especially is where I've made the most progress uh, over the past probably like three or four months. And it's helped me a lot with coping through this pandemic circumstance. Um, there's all kinds of opportunity when we're all cooped up, you know, and time is the number one resource constraint and everybody is sort of, we all have competing interests and, and our respective households. And, and so calmly navigating these waters has just been a, a wonderful thing for me to be able to accomplish. And I credit a lot of that to the progress I've made and, and mindfulness and that like recognizing not judging feelings or emotions as we've talked about under mental skills training on this podcast and, and just kind of like recognizing and dealing with and processing out those thoughts and emotions that we feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you mentioned that sort of objective ability to look at those things and, and that for me, I found helpful especially as it relates to things that I might not be able to control in the moment. Yeah. And I think especially right now, there are a lot of emotions that come up that we can't do anything about, you know, or that, that involve things that are completely outside of our control or purview right now. And, you know, I, I talked about early on when we were kind of, talking about several episodes ago doing a stress inventory in the time of COVID about how I was having a lot of irrational anger towards people that, you know, I can't even influence and whether they be government officials or people that weren't practicing social distancing or whatever it may be, just irrational anger. And so for me, the power there was saying, okay, recognize the feeling, acknowledge that it's real, acknowledge that it's okay to be having those feelings. And that if they pop up periodically, that's fine. But also simultaneously acknowledge that there's nothing I can do about it or that I need to focus on the things that I can control and not worry about the things that I can't control. And so that allowed me in many ways to set that anger aside and channel it into thinking about the things that I could do to influence my sphere to you know, help do our best to combat this situation. So, so sometimes it's just about recognizing and giving yourself permission to set an emotion aside or to not act or to say, you know what, I can't do anything about that. So I'm just going to let it go for right now until I can. Exactly. So, so that's stress. Next, let's talk about blood values. And you know, kind of the elements there. And, and so I'll start here because I have a pretty good athlete anecdote to share that not, not from this group actually, but my group here in Austin. And she was having trouble. Really, she's been having trouble all year since, since January. She raced New York marathon last fall and kind of transitioned into a little bit of a base building program for her. And, but was struggling, has been struggling really since New York, I guess. So that would go back to November. 
started to really feel it in January and was just asking me like, what's going on? You know, suddenly she was having trouble keeping up in workouts and, and things, you know, were just more challenging than they should be. So with an athlete like that, I kind of go through my standard list of questions of, okay, you know, one, are we, are we managing our paces appropriately in workouts? Are we running easy enough on our easy runs? Are we getting in those recovery days? You know, so those, there's the fundamental running questions, you know, then you have the fundamental kind of life questions. How's your sleep? How's your stress? How's your situation at home? You know, you, you kind of, I have this checklist of questions that I go through, you know, how long has this lasted? Those types of things. And when, when all those questions kind of come back empty and there's nothing else that seems to be pointing to the reason why she was struggling, then then to me, almost invariably, it goes back to, okay, there's got to be something unseen, something in the blood that's causing challenges that we just don't know about. And this kind of goes back to Dr. Moose's point in one of our Human Performance Project episodes where he said, you know, many times he finds it's not in your head. <laughs> so if you've evaluated all things and then, and then you just can't figure out what's going on and why you're having this struggle, it's probably not in your head there's probably some fundamental underlying issues in your blood values. And so I had encouraged her for a while to go see Natalie and to do the blood assessment that we talked about with Natalie on this, on, you know, for this podcast. And she finally did it, took her a little bit of time and she was worried about whether or not the investment would be worth it and so forth. But eventually she did it and texted me last week and had gotten her initial results and had done her initial consult with Natalie and I won't go into details on what she saw, but there were at least three issues, you know, that popped up in her blood values that, that exactly pointed to reasons why she would be struggling the way she was struggling with, you know, pretty simple solutions, you know, with supplementation and with some, some changes in diet that will help her get back in balance there. But, for me, one of the fundamental takeaways here is that it's just when when everything else is is telling you that you know it's okay or that there shouldn't be any issues, but there still are, and there's probably some underlying thing happening in your blood that you that you can't see that you need to go have evaluated, and you need to have evaluated with somebody who really knows how to evaluate these things for athletes because a standard blood panel may not be enough. And, and I don't think that's a message that's getting out broadly enough, but that I want to make sure that everybody walks away with here because you might be fine now. Everything could be good now, but you could find somewhere down the road that this happens and you know, I think in an ideal world, we would all periodically have our full blood panel taken and checked so that you could see trends over time. But I know that that may not be cost prohibitive or that may be cost prohibitive for, for a lot of people. And if so, that's okay. But just know that if you're struggling, you're struggling over a period of time at some point down the road and you can't figure out why, there are probably answers there. And go go get them with by evaluating your blood and by doing it with somebody who really understands blood values for athletes. So, and for me, just as a recap, 
you know, I've had times in my history, you know, I just actually saw a Facebook memory pop up for 2016 Boston Marathon where I had to walk the last five miles because of a stress fracture. And that stress fracture, you know, there were a, there were several issues that caused it, but one of the fundamental ones was a vitamin D deficiency that was eventually found by evaluating my blood, which now I know how to fix, I know how to address, I can supplement as I've been doing since and have not only been stronger, but have also been, I feel like, a better recovered athlete because of my D values being in the right place. So that's my takeaway on the blood side. What would you say, Jason? Yeah, I think that it is important uh, to to think about whether or not the investment is right at any given time, especially if it's not as accessible. I know, so you know that's it's an expensive process to go through, and so um, we want to be relatively certain that it's a valuable investment. But the thing, you know, like your Boston story highlights the fact that you may not even realize that anything's wrong um, and until you get injured. <laughs> um, right. And, and that, that sucks. And we can't always, we can't hedge on everything, but this is a tool that you could use at least periodically to, to just kind of double check. That, that systems are a go. You know, we take our cars in for tune-ups and oil changes and we get them inspected every year so that they can stay on the roadway. And um, this is kind of like checking in on our body and making sure that it's all right. You, get, you know, not necessarily a tune-up, but you at least get an inspection on a regular basis. And this is part of it to make sure that, that you're healthy and that age... A, the aging process, so like at any point in time, uh, coupled with the training load that we're enduring um, and any other sort of like life stress issues that might be going on aren't, aren't tilting us off course in any way. And so that, I guess that's how I think about blood chemistry and the utility of it is that the, with the more information I have, the better... I can manage my training, the healthier I can live my life. And so I find that the blood chemistry can be a really valuable bit of information about making sure we're optimizing our health and our performance. Cheers to that. All right, let's talk nutrition. I'll let you lead. What right. do you have as many takeaways there? So I, I, I think I just want to go back and reinforce the, the key principles for me on this. Um, and I'll tie this back to total stress. I'm always thinking about as an athlete and as a coach, how to optimize health and performance. And a lot of the athletes we work with, not all of the athletes, but we work with plenty of athletes. And, and I'm one where I'm trying to make gains on the margin. I mean, and you are too, right? Like long gone are the days where we get a 30 minute PR in the marathon or something stupid like that, you know? Um, so I'm trying to figure out small things I can do in order to get small gains. And so I think about 
diet and nutrition much more meticulously now because it's important. And a few years ago, it was a frontier in which I could make a lot of gains personally. And so real food, uh, which leaves a relatively non-inflammatory diet is, is just foundational to, I think, healthy, a healthy eating style. Um, and then, you know, don't eat too much. Experiment on long runs and then know your hydration needs and have a daily strategy for sustaining normal hydration or what we call euhydration. So, so diet is basically eat real food um, and don't go too crazy with it. <laughs> manage, mm-hmm. manage your calorie expenditure and your calorie intake in proportion to one another. So that's kind of like just the simple part of the diet piece. And then, you know, the diet and nutrition element of training that I want to say is most important or this, the key takeaway is to experiment with in run nutrition strategies. Um, So different kinds of foods you can eat, different balances of sugar and other macronutrients, protein, fat, um, experiment with the trade-offs between liquid, liquid calories versus solid calories, engineered foods versus real foods, uh, and use the long runs as the opportunity to do that because that is going to be the best simulation of what your ultimate goal context is, and it's the time when you really need it the most. And then um, knowing your hydration needs and having a daily strategy for staying hydrated are important. And I, and I think that maybe just is in the forefront of my mind too, as we transition into the summer. And so I think it's a good, a good parting wisdom. And then I guess we could always just say, you know, metabolic flexibility, remember those concepts and how you can use metabolic flexibility as a concept to continue to optimize your performance through how you time what you eat and when you eat it. Yes, you uh, you canvassed that topic well. So I'll only add one small anecdote and then an additional point. Small anecdote is that over, during the quarantine, we've discovered the the power of whole carrots. <laughs> as a snack for the kids. So I've been buying the, I, th- I think they're five pound bags of just the whole, the whole carrots and throwing them in the fridge and the kids will just grab one and they're, you know, they're like a foot long, um, <laughs> yeah. all different widths, you know, sometimes they're thick and sometimes they're long and they're skinny or whatever come in, you know, all different forms and shapes. And then I'll just buy the organic ones throw the bag in the fridge and anytime kids want a snack, they're just, they're popping in and grabbing a carrot. Um, awesome. And you know, it's, it's actually a quite satisfying snack. <laughs> so, you know, again, just eating whole foods. I mean, those are, that's basically the way they come out of the ground and, and it's been pretty awesome. So that's one uh, small diet slash parenting tip, but but my overarching point here, because you hit on all the fundamentals, is I'm going to use a Winston Churchill quote here, which is the idea around nutrition. 
that I think holds true is, and Winston Churchill said on a different topic, but he said, perfection is the enemy of progress. And I think most of the time we all spend too much time thinking about what we're doing wrong with our diet. Yes. And, you know, how we need to be doing this differently or we shouldn't have had that thing or, you know, or, or there's anxiety about meals that are to come and whether or not we'll take, we'll make the right choices. And honestly, for me personally, I've struggled with that for a long time, not in any way that's been paralyzing, but just, you know, probably have done too much beating myself up over bad diet choices. And really over the last couple of years, I've learned through a lot of support and honestly really digging into some of the body positivity movement that, you know, primarily has messages focused towards women. But by digging into that myself, I've also learned to to be kinder to myself. And yes, on the margin, we want to make good decisions, but don't beat yourself up for bad decisions. Quote, unquote, bad decisions. We shouldn't even label them good or bad. They're just... They're just choices and decisions. Moderation's absolutely okay. There's no reason to regret eating something. There's no reason to have anxiety about a choice. You know, if you're if you want something, have it. <laughs> and and don't worry about it. Move on. And so perfection is is the enemy of progress. Don't try to be perfect on diet. Just try to think about little ways that you can that you can better fuel yourself. And again, this isn't about restriction at all. It's about fueling. It's about giving yourself the energy you need to perform the task at hand. And so it's not about cutting out. It's about fueling your body properly and doesn't have to be perfect. You know, this is one of the messages that that my health coach friend, Megan Lyons, hammered home to me several years ago when I shared my food log with her at a time when I was taking it and she said, look, Chris, you're doing great, but you know, here are a few little things you can do. It doesn't have to be perfect. Add more green into your diet. Just focus on that one thing. And if, if you can do that, then that's a good progress. So think about the little things you can do, but it doesn't have to be perfect. Don't beat yourself up over any decision. Fuel your body. Keep moving. Let go of that guilt over eating the wrong thing or thinking you have to be a certain size or thinking you have to lose X pounds. Let go of all of that because focusing on outcomes here is not helpful. You just want to focus on the inputs, the inputs in training, the inputs with what you put in your mouth on the, you know, on the regular and again, it doesn't have to be perfect to make progress. So that's my main takeaway on, on the nutrition side. Yeah, I I love the message, right? Um, and I think it's perfect for this program where it, it's like focus on the process. For me with diet and nutrition, because I've struggled with the same thing, is to think more about the trends. And if I feel like on balance, the paradigm fr- from which I approach the foods I eat is is one that focuses on smart choices on balance. I don't even want to say smart choices. I don't want to give them any kind of label, but like an optimal sort of optimized choice set, then I'm pretty comfortable with it. And I, and I don't want to 
force myself into thinking that I can't eat certain things uh, or put myself into any awkward situations where I feel like I can't eat something that's there because it doesn't fit into some arbitrary category for foods that I've created. So uh, don't let perfect be the enemy of progress. Exactly. All right. So let's talk about our last topic here. I wanted to talk about recovery to kind of wrap things up and we've already covered this a little bit on the sleep topic, but I wanted to end here as a reminder that, you know, you're only as fast as you are good at recovering and that's a critical component. I'm often reminded or have to remind myself that fitness building really happens in recovery just like strength building really happens in recovery between strength workouts. You know, when you're doing the workout, whether they be strength or more speed, that's when you're tearing things down. When you're, when you're adding stress to the body so that in recovery, you can rebuild to a stronger, faster version of you without that recovery component, you don't get there. And so to me, that's, that's fundamental point one is recovery is as important as the workouts themselves in getting to a stronger, faster version of you. Second fundamental thing here, which I probably talk about too much, is that recovery beyond sleep, and really I think of sleep as 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 work in and of itself. It's an active thing. Go to go to sleep, right? But recovery <laughs> is an active process. It's about oftentimes as much about movement as anything else. And that can come in the form of easy movement when it comes to doing an easy recovery run at paces that are much slower as they should be. That can come in the form of moving via doing mobility exercises, gentle mobility exercises, which can promote recovery. That can come in the form of going for a walk, jumping on a foam roller, doing things that promote blood flow so that the body can actually repair itself. Or, I mean, just since we just talked about nutrition, refueling the body can be a part of recovery. That's an active process. Recovery is an active process. It's not a passive process. And even, again, sleep is an active thing. I choose to go to sleep. There's activity involved in making that choice and decision and and getting to bed. So, so to me, that's my final reminder on recovery. Recovery is not laying around doing nothing. <laughs> Sometimes it might look like that, but in, as, as I have to remind my athletes sometime, if you're watching football in hopefully a day when we can watch football again on Saturdays and Sundays post long run, then just laying on the couch watching the game is one thing laying on the ground and, and moving and foam rolling while watching the game is something else. And it's probably a better version of recovery. So, <laughs> so again, final reminder there, just recovery is obviously critical to building fitness, but more than that, it is an active process. What do you have there? Yeah, it looks like I come out about the same on this one again. So, Sleep obviously is the best 
best recovery option that we have. Uh, and it's really just critical overall. I think that it's really important to have a routine for recovery. So for me, it's all about sleep and then movement, whether it is running, walking, or doing some kind of mobility or uh, low stress strength workout. Uh, so, and I'll do some combination of all of them some days, <clears throat> except sleep, it's every day. And um, I, that way, I think having the routine means that when you do have downtime for recovery in your schedule or you're on the day after a hard workout or on the day after a long run, you know exactly what you need to do and you can get it done. So there's no guessing, no no encounters with decision fatigue or anything like that. It's going to be, for me, it's, it's running uh, or mobility or both and then probably some trigger point therapy. Um, so I'm always trying to go after that. And then you know, know what works for you. So experiment with different things that you encounter from other people's recovery routines or whatever we've advocated here and see what does or doesn't yield some sort of tangible benefit for you and keep what works and, and get rid of what doesn't and, and always kind of experiment and try new things. It's all yeah. That's good. That's perfect. Definitely balances well with the ones I listed. And that concludes our takeaways from our 16-week season of base training. Again, that was geared towards athletes that were trying to either build an aerobic foundation or reestablish one or who may have been coming back from injury and wanted to set themselves up in a way that would allow them to then transfer into race-specific training, healthy and strong. As you were able to determine from our categories there in that discussion, we have a strength component to the program. We have a running component to the program that's focused on foundational mileage. And we also have a lifestyle component of the program and all of those individual elements of the lifestyle side we talk about. We give you more details and tools in order to take the areas you'd like to focus and address them so that you can become a stronger, more holistic athlete. That's the intention of the program. This was just sort of a summary of some of the key takeaways, but there's a lot more detail that goes behind it. And every week you get episodes from Jason and I talking about all of those things in addition to just providing the basic instructions on what to do each week for the strength program, what to do each week for the running program, and so forth. If that's of interest, again, you can check out that information by simply going to our website, roguerunning.com, clicking on training. There is a base training page there where you can at least get the details on the program. And you can also sign up to our interest list if you click on the link in the show notes that I will provide. If you have questions beyond that, you can also just email me, chris at roguerunning.com. Hopefully this was useful for you as just an overview of things that you might learn in a base training block and or things you might just need to apply generally to your training right now. With that, we will wrap this episode. Thank you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Stay safe, everybody. Until next week, we will talk to you soon.